0: It can be found at the bottom of the page, the letter entitled, To the Church in Thyatira, verses 18 to 29. That was on page 1,234. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These are the words of the Son of God, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father... I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches.
1: Let's pray uh, as we uh, begin. Father, we thank you for this, your words. Lord, we recognise that it, it contains some things that are hard to understand and maybe hard to to live out. But Lord, we pray that with your help, you may help us to, to not simply know what it means, but actually to, to know what it means for each of us today. In Jesus' name. Amen. So here we have our, our, the letter to the church in uh, Fire Tyra and Revelation. Uh, if you listen to, to David Suchet read it, he says something like, Tiri Tira. So who knows? Take whichever word you want. I say Fire Tyra. so... Uh, there we are. Um, I, I wonder, here's a little um, beginning sort of start A few you, a little quiz. We like quizzes. Um, does anybody know what this is a picture of? Here's a clue. It's a close-up. Velcro. Velcro yes, brilliant. Well done, Diana. Okay, number two. Uh, it's, a, it's toilet paper, so that's what you're rubbing. <laughs> there we go. This is a, this is a personal favorite, though. Uh, this one. These are, they're all very close to us. These are your eyelashes. Yes, there we are. How delightful. <laughs> uh, well, there you go. You're just going to think now, what am I rubbing? And so, oh, anyway, um, The point is that the microscopes help us to, to see things, don't they? They help us to, to see things in a very close-up way. But there's something that microscopes can't do. They can see kind of very close up, but they can't look into something. They could look at uh, the human heart. They could look at the kind of muscle fibers. They could go really close to kind of the outside of what's going on. But they can't tell you the thoughts and emotions, the feelings. They can't discern motives. They just show what's on the outside, not what's going on inside. And here we have Jesus writing to the angel of the church in Thyatira, to to the church, the the heaven reality in Thyatira. And what does he draw back on? Verse 18. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose eyes can see not just on but into, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Jesus can look where no man or microscope can, and he says, these are the words of the Son of God to the church in Fire Tyra." Uh, so where is um, Tyra? Well, uh, you can see on the map there, or indeed in your Bibles, you can see at the back, back inside covers, has got the map there for you. Um, you can see it's just to the, the southeast uh, of Pergamum, where we were looking last week. Uh, and of the, the seven sort of cities or seven places that we're looking at, uh, this is the smallest. Uh, we might say it's the, the least significant. There's nothing sort of obvious Marking it out. There's no real reason for you want to go there. Uh, It's just a city that sort of uh, has lots of trades and guilds going on. You might say it's a bit like Burnley. Now, apologies if you're from Burnley. Um, But it's just a place that has lots of manufacturing. It's sort of almost nothing, you know, in that sort of way. Uh, But it is a place, I said, that has lots of uh, Manufacturing. Going on, and in particular, uh, it's famous for its bronze. Fire Tyran bronze was was renowned, and it was renowned in particular because there was a a, a secret formula, a a bit like iron brew you know, that secret formula no one can know. Um, Fire Tyra had a a secret bronze formula, it it, it was a a particularly special mixture. And, And so, to this city of bronze. The one with bronze feet writes, I know. To the city of bronze, the ones with feet burnished like bronze writes, verse 19, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance. And that you are now doing more than you did at first. Uh, Jesus, the one who, who sees into, uh, he says, I know what, what it's like. I know what, what you're doing. I see that. I see your, your love, your deeds. I see that you were here and that you've moved and you're now here. I've seen you've grown. And that's really good. It's a bit of a, a little model, isn't it, of, of the Christian life, of growing in faith. Growing in love. And this church are doing that. They're growing in their service of Jesus more and more. And that's a a wonderful thing that Jesus is commending them for. But then we get that word in verse 20. Nevertheless. Just that sort of hinge point. You're doing this really well nevertheless nevertheless i have this against you you tolerate that woman jezebel who calls herself a prophet by her teaching she misleads my servants into sexual morality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols you tolerate that woman jezebel now now when it says that it, it's very very unlikely it means somebody called Jezebel in the church of Thyatira. Indeed, it might not even be a woman. Indeed, it might not be an individual. It could be a group. But of course, where, what he's saying is he's calling them Jezebel so that they go back and think of a name earlier on. It's a bit like uh, when Sol Campbell moved from Tottenham to Arsenal, all the Tottenham fans called him Judas. Of course, referring to Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, moving from a rival club. Uh, um, you know, we might call people, or we hopefully we don't call people, we might hear people being called Judas. And what they mean is betrayer. You're calling somebody a name because you're drawing out what they're like. Uh, And so here, Jesus is calling this individual or this group Jezebel. Because that's what they're like. Well, who then is Jezebel? Well, if you want to know fully, the best thing to do is later on in the day or part of the week uh, is to read 1 Kings 16 to 2 Kings 9. Uh, That will give you the whole story and more. But here's the, the headline. Uh, she's a, a Phoenician princess who married uh, one of the Israelite kings called King Ahab. Now, King Ahab wasn't a, a good king. In a moment, I'm going to just read a little bit uh, from one Kings. Uh, and whenever you read the book of Kings, if you were to read it, what you see is at the start of when it introduces the king, it says, and and so-and-so became king in this year, and then it will say, and did, even the sight of the Lord, or good in the sight of the Lord. It gives you a little kind of one-line summary of what this king was going to be like. And so we get to Ahab. So let me read to you 1 Kings 16, verses 29 to 31. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, there's a little bit, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel for 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any other before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, but he also married Jezebel, Daughter of Evathabel, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. So, this guy Ahab is, is a pretty nasty piece of work. If you kind of Jeroboam, that, that, that sort of saying, again, he followed other idols and, and did things like that. And it's also drew out saying, and he married Jezebel, he basically married another, uh, the daughter of another king as a political alliance. But Jezebel herself was also a bit of a nasty piece of work. Uh, she brought with her uh, 400 prophets of Baal. There's a little statue of Baal. Uh, 400 prophets of Baal. Uh, 400 prophets of Asherah. Asherah, should I say. Uh, Asherah was the, uh, the lover, uh, the mother, or both of Baal. So it was conceived that actually that Baal and Asherah would sort of consummate and then that would bring fertility So these two gods that are there. So she brought these prophets of Baal, these prophets of Asherah, and she also brought with her a, a zeal, a determination to destroy the worship of Yahweh, of the Lord. She wants to replace that with the worship of Baal. And the worship of Baal is awful. It would involve tossing your live baby into the fire as a sacrifice, often your firstborn. It would then be followed by uh, by bisexual orgies, which of course would create unplanned pregnancies, but you just toss them into the fire. Ahab and Jezebel are evil. They wanted to lead the people away, and it's deadly. And so uh, we then get the story of Elijah. You might have heard of Elijah. Uh, And particularly there's a moment where Elijah comes and he confronts Ahab and Jezebel. Uh, And there's a story that you may know about them going up Mount Carmel and building two altars. Uh, and there's a, a, a God contest. There's a, a children's book about that exact story that you can um, get. Really, it's really, really good. Uh, it's a God contest. And uh, in this moment, Elijah says to, to the whole crowd, this is chapter 1 Kings 18, verse 21. He says, if the Lord is God, uh, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. And so in the story, uh, they, they create these two altars on the top of Mount Carmel. Uh, the prophets of Baal go round and they dance and dance and nothing happens. Uh, Elijah's sort of taunting them. Uh, and then Elijah pours water on his sacrifice uh, and then fire comes down and burns it all up. Uh, proving that the Lord is God, uh, not Baal. Uh, proving that, that what Jezebel and Ahab believe in is complete nonsense. Uh, the prophets are, are, are put to the sword And then, understandably, Jezebel is pretty furious with Elijah. So Elijah has to flee, and he goes away. But the story, of course, continues. King Ahab wants to buy a field from a guy called Naboth. And he won't do it. So King Ahab acts like a bit of a toddler and goes as an assault. And Jezebel finds him and says, well, why are you so upset? You're the king. And he kind of says, oh, I won't sell me the field. So Jezebel has Nabu killed so that he can get the field. Later on in, uh, in 1 Kings, uh, there's this comment that's made by the author who says this is 1 kings 21 verse 25 um, there was never anyone like ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the lord urged on by Jezebel his wife the murderer uh, later on uh, elijah said that uh, Jezebel would be uh, would be killed And that dogs would eat her body. Uh, And that's exactly what happened. Uh, Later on, uh, in 2 Kings 9, uh, her own eunuchs push her out the window, and then I've just sort of zoomed in, the same picture, push her out the window. Uh, She dies when she hits the the, the, the ground, and then when they go to collect the body, the body's not there, or just parts of the body there, because the dogs have eaten it. So that no one can know where her body will be. So therefore, to be called a Jezebel, to to bring up all of that sort of Old Testament story is to call somebody saying, you are somebody who's dragging the people away from God. You're dragging them into a deadly, deadly disease. You're turning God's people toward death. I know a passage back in Revelation again. She says, look, verse 21, I've given her time to repent of her immorality. This is not kind of just a, an off-the-cuff, sort of spare of the moment thing. There's been time to come back and repent. But again, the end of verse 21, but she is unwilling. See, this is not... Somebody who's come in from the outside and is trying to bring the world's view and say, you must do this, because this is what the world says. This is someone in the church. This is somebody in the church who's saying, this is how to behave. This is somebody who they knew. This is an individual or a group who's teaching things that will lead to death. And Jesus is saying, you are tolerating this. So what was it that, that was being taught? Well, we don't exactly know, but the likelihood is it was related to the guilt. Remember I said that the, the city of Fire Tyre was full of uh, guilds everywhere. And so in order to be successful, you had to be part of a guilt. If you weren't, you're just, Sidelined and put to the side, because in the guild that's where you get the finances, that's where you get the support, the money, the growth, the lot. But unlike our society today, where our work and our kind of faith are just completely separate, that's not the case at all. Then they're entirely intertwined. So that if you were, so every guild had its gods that it was worshipped. Every guild would have its way of doing that. It might be just simply honouring the God as you have come for your guild meetings. It might be partaking in the ritual festivals and the ritual worship. Can you see both of which, sexual morality and food sacrifice for idols? That's what it means. It means that you're fully enabling the worship of that. But you can imagine what was being said Look, look, Jesus, He knows your heart. He, he knows your heart. He, he wants you to be successful. Jesus doesn't want you to be unsuccessful. He wants you to prosper. He wants you to have mission opportunities, to get to know other people, to get alongside them. He wants that. So it doesn't matter what you do. Jesus knows your heart. So it doesn't matter how you behave. Because your heart is the important thing. Your heart's wanting to serve Jesus. So it doesn't matter if you engage in this practice. It doesn't matter if you uh, sacrifice to these gods, because you're not really sacrificing. It doesn't matter if you do these practices, because you're not really doing it. But Jesus, he does see they're right. But it does matter. It does matter. You see here, Jesus is calling these people, saying they're like Jezebels. The one who committed spiritual adultery and doing this is exactly the same. It's exactly the same. And so there are consequences. Verse 22 and 23. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and i will make those who commit adultery of her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways i will strike her children dead and just by children there it's meaning those who follow the teaching the kind of the following of the teaching the children in that way then the churches will know that i am he who searches hearts and minds and will pay each of you according to your deeds it's serious it's serious. And Jesus will do that. And, and we assume he did that to this group. And that the churches knew that took place. Do you see that? So they will know, the, the churches will know. And if he's done it to them, he will do it to others too. Because the spiritual adultery is serious. See, the issue for the church in fire Tyre, Is that they were doing the right thing. They were growing in their love, their faith, their service, their perseverance. They were doing well. They were growing from here to here. But it's not just doing the right thing. It's believing the right thing. And then acting upon it. This is where we talk about doctrine. Now when you hear doctrine, you might just think that's just cold and old. That's just like, what is that? But, But doctrine simply means teaching. That's all it means. Uh, and so we need to have our, our right teaching, our, our right doctrine. because it matters what we believe. It really, really matters. And here, the church in Phityra uh, tolerated this. They tolerated it. They said, "It doesn't matter. But Jesus sees. Jesus knows, and his verdict is that it's deadly. Deadly. And so, with that in mind, he then turns to those who haven't, verse 24, haven't held to their teaching, who who haven't learned, say, to so called deep secrets. And he says this, verse 25, verse 24 and 25 I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. He says, look, hold on to the teaching once received. Hold on to it. Don't let your belief change uh, with generations. Uh, Don't put your feet on the foundation of culture. Stand firm on the gospel once preached, held forth. Stand firm and do not move because that does not change. And as you do, we wait for the coming of the Lord Jesus. We wait for life. Verse 26, to the one who's victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Verse 27, where uh, Jesus quotes from Psalm 2, verses 8 uh, and 9. Uh, that one will rule them of an iron scepter and dash them to pieces like pottery. Uh, just as I've received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Uh, a quote from Numbers twenty four uh, That is to say, uh, the one who holds first the gospel will be given life. Will be given the morning star, given Jesus himself and, and will rule with Jesus, not by oppression and pain but through sacrifice and service as he brings in his kingdom. So what does all this mean? Well, it means that what you believe matters. In a moment, we're going to uh, say the creed together, uh, the words that we say every week. But these are are not just words that we say because the church is going to tell us to. Uh, They're words that we Believe, Because what we believe matters. They're they're words that Christians have literally died for throughout the generations. Uh, They're words that count. And they're words that we need to take seriously. As I was preparing uh, for this, uh, I was reading a a book uh, by Stephen Travis. It was written in 1995, so it's quite you a few, a few years old, but I, I was pretty challenged by what it said. Let me just read to you uh, a couple of paragraphs so, uh, that he says. He says, In our day, perhaps we're inclined to have sympathy with Jezebel's followers. Uh, we value tolerance and flexibility more than rigid principles and zealous purity. What could be more reasonable than the suggestion that unless we are immersed in the world's everyday affairs, we're in no position to offer a Christian witness to society? Are we not supposed to be salt and light in the world? Yet John is telling us that there are times when the only authentic witness to Christ is the witness which accepts the risk of being misunderstood and isolated from society for the sake of loyalty to the true God. It is a silent witness of suffering and death like the witness of Christ itself. And here's the bit that hit me between the eyes. Those of us who are temporarily, temperament, uh, temperamentally compromisers, which is me, I'm part of the Church of England, but that's my thing, I, I hate conflict. Now, rather than defiant confronters of social evil and false religions, are wise to ask ourselves occasionally, can I imagine a situation in which I would have To take a stand, whatever the cost, against something which seems so seamlessly at odds with my Christian faith, or would I always find a way of fudging the issue? Are there times when we say, I have to make a stand? For me, as I said, that hits me because I'm someone who hates conflict. But are there times when we have to stand? I guess most supremely in mind, we can apply that to our work or family life. Times when that might go in conflict. Now, this isn't saying how to make the stand, it's not saying being nasty and aggressive and mean. But maybe we need to make a stand. Maybe completely unknown by anybody else, privately, maybe publicly. but we need to stand. But it's also very hard not to read this passage in light of what we had this week at Synod. Uh, When we plan these Bible passages, we don't look at the the church diary and say, what issues do we think might arise and what passages are going to fit? In the Lord's providence, this seems like the passage that we needed for this week. Now, I, I don't know how aware you are of, of what happened in the Church of England this week. Uh, but just in case, let me give you a quick press A. Uh, uh, there was a motion put forward to the General Synod. The General Synod is the, the, the governing body, if you will, uh, of the Church of England, made up of elected bishops, clergy and laity, non-ordained folk. Uh, and they decide all sorts of different things. Uh, and there was a, a motion put forward this week which was the culmination at the end of a, a five year process uh, called Living in Love and Faith. Uh, and the, the, the motion was put forward to uh, uphold the, the traditional value of, of marriage, traditional Christian doctrine of marriage, between one man uh, and one woman, uh, where the only place appropriate for sexual intimacy. Uh, but it was also put forward to say, but we, we would like to, to bless uh, couples who, who kind of are in. Stable, faithful relationships outside of that. That, I suppose, is most obviously same-sex relationships, but not exclusively uh, those who aren't married. Uh, and there was a, an eight-hour debate over two days. Uh, there was lots of amendments put forward to this uh, motion, seeking to, to clarify, seeking to, to, to uphold a, a greater biblical uh, belief. Uh, and each of those amendments were cut out, except one, uh, which actually is an answer to prayer, if you're at the prayer meeting on Wednesday nights. We prayed specifically for an amendment by Andrew Corns, was uh, asking that, that, that any future prayers uh, would not be contrary to the doctrine of, of Christian marriage. And that was upheld uh, by all three houses, so that was added into the motion. But after that, a, a bit more debate, the motion went forward and, and then it was put forward and uh, it was voted through. Uh, because it's not a change of doctrine, because they're saying the, the doctrine's the same, it just needed a simple majority rather than the normal two-thirds vote. But what the, the outcome of that motion means is positively uh, there's a, a, a reinforcement and a, a, a repetition of the doctrine of marriage between one man and one woman as the place for sexual intimacy. But at the same time, uh, it's also offering uh, prayers of blessing uh, for same-sex couples or unmarried couples who are in sexual relationships. Or or in short, uh, what it's seeking to do is bless what God and the church have called sin for two millennia. Seems a little bit like a a Jezebel-like doctrine coming into the church. Uh, Now, what next? Well, the national press is always slightly misleading, um, so I wouldn't take the headlines of the BBC. Um, The next step is that uh, the bishops have to do a bit more work, and they'll come back to the next synod in July with their proper prayers and say, these are the prayers that we we think we want to offer. Uh, And they've got to come for approval, uh, along with the pastoral guidance, which is kind of the the pastoral guidance that clergy have to sign up to uh, before getting ordained. Uh, Most interestingly, obviously, those prayers have to conform to that last uh, amendment by Andrew Corns that they have to not be contradictory to, to marriage, the doctrine of marriage. But it shows the importance of that synod in July, but also it shows that the Church of England is taking a step uh, toward in that direction. Uh, so much so that you, you may have heard uh, other churches uh, who are already saying we're, we're breaking communion with you. Bishops from Africa are saying the Church of England, the Mother Church, is, is moving away. Uh, the primate of Alexandra uh, and Bishop of Egypt, Archbishop Sami Fawzi, said, uh, This is a shift in practice which will lead eventually to impaired and broken communion. We inherited the traditional orthodox faith of the Church of England. So please, please, do not surrender your unique position as the mother church of the Anglican Communion. It is your choice. So what does that mean? Well, it means that we have to stand firm. I don't know what that means in real terms. I don't know what it means as individuals. I don't know what it means uh, as a church in BH. I don't even uh, know what it means as a, a national church of those who want to hold on to orthodoxy. But my sense is that there may be a time when we have to stand firm. I want to say we will not tolerate this. Interestingly, I don't know about if you've seen stuff, but I've never seen so much unity amongst evangelicals at all in my life. And it's not a case of uh, individuals shouting forward. It's not really even a case of churches uh, shouting up. It's a case of the church standing together saying, This is not acceptable. We cannot tolerate it. Not because we want to. <sighs> stand on our high horse but because we cannot call what is sin good because that is misleading and mean and will lead to death we want to love people with the gospel and so we have to stand firm and hold to the gospel as I said that will mean all sorts of different things for us in different situations individually Uh, it, It may mean in our own situation and circumstances, but it also may mean something corporately. I have no idea what that will be, but it does mean we need to pray. We need to pray for each other and we must pray for the church. Pray that actually, verse 21, I gave her time to repent of immorality, but she is unwilling, that the Church of England wouldn't be the same. So let's pray now. Father, we thank you that this word is a a word that we did not plan, but a word in season. Lord, we pray that you may help us as individuals to hold fast to the gospel, to contend for the faith, to love our world with the love that you've given us, the reconciliation of Christ. And we pray that you may help us to stand firm to the gospel today. In Jesus' name, amen.